Welcome to the Together PDX podcast. You're listening to our Gospel Gathering series, where we will be replaying valuable content from past events where local Portland leaders gathered to hear from authors, theologians, and scholars. We'd like to note that the views shared by our guests don't necessarily reflect those of the entire Together PDX team. We pray today's content enriches your day and spirit. Hey everyone, I'm Elise Gallus, and this episode is part two of Father Ron Rollheiser's 2020 talk on ministries and self-care in an anxious time. In this part, Father Ron digs deeper into ministering beyond our hurt, our tired, and our wounds. Like last time, we'll also get to hear some Q&A from local Portland pastors. Enjoy! Okay, the, the second hour here, I want to talk about ministering and ministering be, uh, beyond our tiredness, our wounds, and our temperament, you know. And I first want to begin simply by naming the, the tension. And I, I just named it with John Mark in terms of the discussion we just had. And that is the, the, the tension between healthy self-sacrifice and healthy self-care, um, like I said, you know, let's look at healthy self-sacrifice. You know, uh, if you just take the Gospels, you just, just take Jesus, um, you're, you're not getting um, a lot of stuff on self-care. So the Gospels lay out the self-sacrifice, you know. Just do this, and if you die at 33, you die within three years of your ministry, you just do it. And that's oftentimes the example we get from the great saints, you know, young missionaries who went to China and got tortured and died and so on. Uh, and those are inspirational stories. But how do you sustain a ministry for 40 and 50 and 60 years, you know? Um, so that today there's, there's a healthy thing in our seminaries and so on that talk about healthy self-care. So that um, I'll give you an example from my own life. Um, I went to the seminary in 1966. It was still a former time. And there, almost the entire emphasis in our seminary studies were, and spirituality was on self-sacrifice. Give yourself over. Your own needs don't mean anything, and so on. Uh, it's the Jesus thing. You know, I've taught in seminaries for a long time. Today, sometimes, I worry that uh, young men are ordained as Roman Catholic, and, and they're they're more into self-care than into self-sacrifice, where they're just taught you, you got to take care of yourself, you have to take so many days off each week, you have to do this, you have to do these proper vacations, you know. Um, well, it's it's in between the two. Um, and again, it's meant to be a tension. It's not, I'm into self-sacrifice and not into self-care. I'm into self-care, not into self-sacrifice. It's meant to be a tension that... Um, um, the, always, am I being too hard on myself? Am I being too easy on myself? Am I being too hard on myself? Am I being too easy on myself? And most spiritual writers would suggest that we should have a spiritual director or a friend or some counselor whom we trust who would uh, help us, you know, because sometimes if we're undersensitive, we'll probably get into too much self-care. If we're oversensitive, you're going to get into too much self-sacrifice. So oftentimes you need an outside monitor who can look at your life and say, you know, um, no, it's, it's, uh, uh, you're doing too much, you're doing too little. Now, I want to talk about sustaining ourselves. So sustaining ourselves for, like I said, 
if we were in a sprint, when you watch a sprint in the Olympics, you know, it's over in 10 seconds and everybody just goes full out. When you watch a marathon, nobody goes full out. They got to pace themselves for two hours. Well, um, if like Jesus, if we were going to die in three years, um, you don't have to pace yourself much. If you're going to minister for 40 years, you, you got to pace yourself and so on. So I want to look at some, some rules for this. But I want to begin with a story. I say it's a, it's a mythical story. I say it's a, uh, an ego drama and a theodrama. You know, theo is the word for God. We can, in our ministry, we're constantly involved in both an ego drama and in a God drama. And this is the story. And I draw the story from the Sufi mystics, you know, uh, and it's a story they use in their formation programs. You know, when they're training a Sufi uh, spiritual director. And this is the story. Okay. They say, once upon a time, said there was a young man. And this young man felt God's call. He felt God's call to preach God's consolation and to preach God's challenge to the world. So this young man went and he apprenticed himself to the elders in the deep woods. And the elders trained him. They instructed him. And when they felt he was ready, they gathered around this young man. They laid their hands on him. They blessed him. And they sent him out with their blessings. They said, go out. You're blessed by us. And go and preach God's consolation and God's challenge to the world. So this young man, full of passion, full of faith set out, and this is the way he would do it. Each day, he would go to a village or a town, and he'd go into the market square just at high noon, when people were buying and selling and drinking ouzo and tea, and the kids were skipping and playing in the market squares, and he would shout out. He would say, is there anyone here who wants to hear about God's challenge and God's consolation? And always there would be. Always there would be one elder would say, I will hear it. And he would take the young man, and he would take the young man to his house. And then that night after the supper meal, some people would gather, but not many people. And some people would come late. Some people would leave early. They would listen to him in polite boredom. And after he was finished, they would engage him in a couple of, you know, polite questions, and he would leave. And always he left discouraged. He would go back to his meager lodgings and he would think, this is not the people that God has sent me to preach to. And so it went on. Every day he'd go into a village and say, does somebody want to hear about God's consolation and challenge? And every day some elder would take him to the house and it would be the same as the night before. A few people would gather. Some would come late. Some would leave early. There'd be polite questions and he'd leave. And so it went on until one day. One day he came to a large town. And he went into the market square at high noon, just as every day before. And he says, does anyone want to hear about God's consolation and God's challenge? And one of the elders said, we will hear you. And he took him to his house. And that night was very different. They had set up a platform in the market squares. And that night a crowd gathered a large, large crowd, and nobody came late, and nobody left early, and they didn't listen in board, and they listened with rapture 
as he spoke for some hours, and then they engaged him in some very deep questions, and he filled with energy. And that night when he went back to his lodge, he said, finally, finally, I found the people that God has sent, sent me to preach to. And all the next day he was full of energy. And he was working on what he would say that night to the people. And after the supper meal, he went to the town square. It was like the night before. The chairs were set up. There was a platform. And as he went up to speak, the elder took by the sleeve and said, no, no, it's not you tonight. This woman is going to give a talk here tonight. And he sat down and he listened politely to this woman as she spoke. And it was like the night before. The people engaged and they asked her deep questions late into the night. And he went back to his lodgings and he felt very empty. And the next morning he got up early to leave the village to continue his journey. And as he gets to the edge of the village, the elder was there and the elder said, Why are you leaving us? We like listening to you. And the young man said, Well, obviously you don't need me. You have other people who can speak to you about God's challenge and God's God's uh, consolation. The elder took him with a sleeve and he said, young man, let me give you a counsel. Let me give you a counsel. He says, the young man who was so full of himself two nights ago, and was so empty of himself last night, he, last night he said, neither of those people is you. Stay with us and we'll teach you who you are. And because he was a counselor, he repeated the second time. He says, the young person was so full of himself two nights ago and so empty of himself last night, neither of them is you. Stay with us and we'll teach you who you are. Bring this up because in our, in our struggle with tiredness, with tension and so on, we're going, we're, 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 that young man is inside of us. And we're going to struggle with that. Uh, except, as the elder said, it's not us struggling. You know, when we have success in ministry and people are listening with rapt attention and so on, it, it fills us naturally with energy. And when we, when, when things aren't going well, when you're preaching a homily or a sermon on a Sunday, you look around and not anybody's remotely interested in what you're saying and so on, we can just so empty it, become so empty and depressed and so on. But as this elder says, neither of those two people is us. That's our ego filling and our ego emptying. Um, said, stay with us and we'll teach you who you are. Okay. Um, so I want to give us some commandments for the long haul here. And, um, and, I, and I have eight of them. And so let, let me start with the first one. I said, the first one, accept tension and opposition as part of your ministry. Accept tension and opposition as part of your ministry. Remember, and Jesus is pretty clear about that. Jesus said, if you're going to be my follower, they're going to treat you the way they treated me. And notice they didn't just treat Jesus with tension. Jesus had some wonderful successes. At times people, you know, flocked to him. And, you know, remember that wonderful text in Mark where Mark says, when the apostles came back from their first missionary excursion, um, and, and Mark said they, they came back and he said they, they were full of energy and so on. He said, and then people gathered around them and there were so many people, they didn't have time to eat. Or Jesus would try to get to the other side of the lake and when he got there, they were all there and so on. So he had some wonderful successes, which we will have. Um, but also there's going to be constant, there's 
going to be tension. There's going to be opposition. And we need to accept that as part of our ministry. You know, when I was provincial of our order in Western Canada, and uh, it was just a time when there were, we started having a shortage of priests. And so there was this nun, marvelous woman. And uh, so I put her in charge of a rural parish, you know. I said, you know, you, you act as the pastor and so on. And, uh, and you know, we'll have a priest come out once in a while to, for the Eucharist and so on. So she did. And actually, it went very, very well. But she came to see me, said, you know, some people don't like me. And some people don't accept me and so on. Um, well, I knew a lot of the people there. She probably had 90% of the people who loved and accepted her. 10% didn't. I said, sister, those are really good numbers. <laughs> she said, nobody gets better than that. You know, I said, nine out of 10 people love you. Nine out of 10 people think you're wonderful. Uh, one out of 10 doesn't. Uh, but that goes with the ministry. You're never going to have 10 out of 10. Jesus didn't have 10 out of 10. Oftentimes, Jesus didn't have 9 out of 10. And um, so to, to know that this is part and parcel um, of ministry. Then second, be gentle with yourself and your inadequacies. Be gentle with yourself and your inadequacies. That banner I told you about during the, during the discussion, you know, with the, with the sister had on the banner, she says, Fear not, you are inadequate. Um, you know, it's interesting, forgiveness, forgiveness is hard. We all struggle to forgive, to give other, forgive others. But interestingly, the person we struggle the most to forgive is ourselves. And again, particularly if you're a sensitive person. Henry Nowen used to say, he says, Every night, he said, I spend long hours and I try to do everything. It's my, my day is just jammed full of everything. He said, when I go to bed at night, he said, I'm always conscious of what I didn't do. There's somebody else you're supposed to have visited. There's somebody else you should have written. There's somebody else you should have phoned. You should have stayed a little longer with this other person. There's the street person you walked. Uh, um, there's a meeting you avoided. Some webinar you should have done and so on. Um, we're always conscious of our inadequacies, and um, but but we have to be able to to let them go. You know, there's a, I'm sure it's mythology, but it's a good one. But they say John the Twenty Third, within this marvelous Pope, you know, who gave us the Vatican Council. They said when he'd go to bed at night, he'd always his last prayer was this, Lord. He said, "It's your world. I'm taking a sleep. You take over." And I think every pastor needs that. Say, you know, Lord, it's your world. Um, and, you know, but there's something to that. It's still God's world. God is still in charge. Uh, um, we are ultimately dispensable. Um, but we have to forgive ourselves for, for not being God. Then, be doubly gentle with those you minister to in their inadequacies. This is so important. You know, we're beset by weaknesses. Remember the text I gave you from, from, from Hebrews, and it says, he can, say he or she, the minister can be gentle with others because he or she is beset by weakness. You know, the great gift of our own weakness is that hopefully it will let us understand, be empathic with the weakness and inadequacies of others. 
um, you know that, that that's that's the great gift of our weakness that um, it, it can make us be true compassionate ministers you know um, and so that be gentle with your own weakness but then to be doubly gentle with those you minister to in their weakness um, unlike remember that the, the famous story in scripture on forgiveness where the master forgives the debt of, of his servant a large debt and 10 minutes later the servant is throttling a servant who owed him a lot less you know um, see because we're weak we need to be gentle with with others weakness tell you a little story here uh, when I was ordained as a Roman Catholic priest in Edmonton in, in 1972, in those years, there was still something, uh, there was still, a, a, we still had an exam called jurisdiction. And so you were ordained as a Catholic priest and you could do everything except your confessions. You weren't allowed to hear confessions until the bishop gave you, uh, you know, a specialized permission to hear confession. And you had to do an exam called jurisdiction. And um, and it, the bishop could have ministered himself, but he didn't have time, so he'd farm it out usually to the moral theologians at the seminary. And so they would give you mock confessions. You know, somebody comes in, I, I had an abortion, what do you do this, and so on, and how would you handle this? And so I had three of these, you know, examinations from moral theologians about how I would handle different situations in confession. And so when I got called in by the head moral theologian and rector of the seminary, <clears throat> he told me, he said, we're, we're going to recommend to the bishop to give you jurisdiction, but we're doing it with hesitation. We're doing it with hesitation. He said, um, we feel you're going to be too soft on people, that you're going to be too gentle and you're not going to be, you know. Um, and then he, he said, always remember this, Father. He says, the truth sets people free. He said, and you don't do people a favor by being too gentle with them. So, I, I got an asterisk, but I, I got jurisdiction to hear a confession. Well, six months later, I was in California working in do, doing my a graduate degree. And um, I was staying at one of our parishes in Los Angeles, large parish and so on. And there was an old priest there, retired. <clears throat> he was in his, his 70s. And um, I shouldn't say old anymore. I'm in my 70s and so on. But, and he was blind, you know, but he's one of these great gentlemen that I've met. And so one night I was alone with him. We were sitting in, in, in the lounge of the rectory. And I said to him, Leo, his name was Leo, I said, Leo, um, if you had your priesthood to do over again, would you do it differently? And he said, yes, I would. Yes, I would. He said, if I had my priesthood to do over again, he said, I would be much more gentle next time. He said, you know, in the seminary, they always said, you know, the truth sets you free. Don't be gentle with people. And he says, I believe, he said, and it was a mistake. He said, people have so many burdens. They have so many burdens. He said, uh, we need to lift their burdens, not to double their burdens. Uh, I learned a lesson there. Be doubly gentle. Then number four, lean on grace and not just on willpower. What is grace and what is willpower? Let me give you an example. And it's the contrast that 
the Bible or the Gospels themselves set up between Jesus and John the Baptist. Okay. They come to John the Baptist and say, are you the Christ? And the Baptist said, no. He said, I'm not the Christ. He said, in fact, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal straps. But then he says this. He said, I come and I baptize with water, but he baptizes with fire and the Holy Spirit. I baptize with water. He baptizes with fire and the Holy Spirit. What's the difference between fire and water? Okay. Water is this. Water can wash things clean, but it can't change anything. Okay. Imagine you're, you, you're walking on a beach and you find a, an old lamp buried in the sand and you take it home and you power wash it. You just power all the sand out of it. Now it's perfectly clean. You see what you got, but you haven't changed it. But fire is alchemy. Fire can melt that lantern down and change it into something else. So let's go back to John the Baptist and Jesus. John is telling the people this. is, you know, the difference between me and Jesus, I can tell you what's wrong with you, but I can't change anything. See, remember John the Baptist calls people to their sins, but that's only half there. He says, I can tell you what's wrong with you, but I can't change your life. Jesus can not only tell you what's wrong with you, he's fire. The fire can change your life. See, that's the difference between willpower and grace. You know, if uh, any of you have ever been involved with 12-step programs, they're predicated on this. But before we get to 12-step programs, let's deal with Jesus. You know, when Jesus, right after that um, incident of the rich young man, and he walks away sad, and um, the text said, then Jesus turns to the disciples and says, I tell you truly, it's hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Then Peter says, if that's the case, it's impossible. And Jesus said, in fact, it is. It's impossible for human beings. It's not impossible for God. See, every addict knows it's impossible to stop drinking on your own, but it's possible to do it with a higher power. You know, that's the difference between living our life by grace or living our life by willpower. And again, if you're a strong person who hasn't made a lot of mistakes in your life, that's wonderful. But then the danger is we think we can do it. I can actualize myself and do this at a certain point we can't, or if we can, sometimes we can, but then we end up like the older brother of the prodigal son. I've done everything right, and yet there's a bitterness inside of me because I'm acting out of willpower, not out of grace. Um, I want to double back on this. I, I want to do the, the number six, what I call praying effectively, to learn how to pray effectively. And then I want to Turned that to grace. I want to enter that through the Gospel of John. As you know, the Gospel of John, let me just take a little drink of water here, sorry. As you know, the Gospel of John is very different than the other three Gospels. You know, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, <clears throat> they, they give a kind of a chronology, Jesus, you know, there's a beginning, there's an end, and so on. 
But also, this is what's important. In the Synoptic Gospels, they write up Jesus from the point of view of his humanity. So Jesus is a human. He's human. He's divine and human. But they emphasize his humanity. He walks the earth as a man who happens to be God. Okay. John's Gospel is different. John's Gospel is written much later. And in John's Gospel, Jesus has no humanity whatsoever. He is God from the first line um, to, the, to the end. Remember that it begins at the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. So in John's Gospel, Jesus is God walking around in human flesh, and to the smallest detail. So for instance, um, John says, Philip asked him, how many loaves and fish do you have? And John said, I mean, Jesus says, uh, pardon me, Jesus asked him, how many, how many loaves and fish do you have? John said in brackets, he already knew, you know, God doesn't have to ask us any questions. Okay. Or like in John's gospel, when they come to arrest Jesus in the garden, he stands up, everybody falls over. Okay. Now, but it begins this way. These are going to be the first words out of Jesus' mouth in John's gospel. So he's God. And the people are looking at him, the disciples of John, and they're looking at him out of curiosity. And he says to them, what are you looking for? Just that question. What are you looking for? And uh, and the whole gospel is to answer that question. Jesus is going to explain. We're looking for the way, the truth, the life, the water of life that we drink and never have to be thirsty again. We're looking to be born again. You know, all those motifs in John. We're looking to have our eyes open so we see more deeply. You know, So the whole gospel of John is to answer that question. What are we looking for? But the original ending of John's gospel was this. Chapter chapter 20 was written later. It ended with Jesus at the tomb, Mary Magdalene at the tomb on Easter Sunday in the morning. And Jesus meets her. She thinks it's the gardener. And he says to her, what are you looking for? And she thinks she's the gardener. He says, well, I'm looking for the body of Jesus. Then Jesus answers the entire gospel with one word, Mary. He pronounces her name in love. She fell at his feet, which means she became his disciple. That's what disciples do. Okay. He pronounced her name in love effectively. Now, that's the entire gospel of John, you know. And it's a gospel that incidentally the church didn't accept for a long time, the other churches, because in John's gospel there are no rules. There's only one rule. To have an intimate relationship with Jesus. Okay. I'll tease that out in, the, in another example. Some years ago, and I'd already been ordained priest for 25 years, <clears throat> and I went on a retreat. French Canadian retreat director, Robert Michel. Gentle old man. And he had a wonderful retreat. And he began to retreat this way. He says, well, he said, you've all been in this business for a long time, and you know how to pray but I want to teach you this week how to pray in a special way. I want to teach you how to pray in such a way that maybe not this week, or maybe not even this year, but sometime in your prayer life, you can open yourself so you can hear God say to you, I love you. Because before that, your life will never be right. You'll be searching for this, you'll be searching for that. And you, hear, you need to hear God pronounce your name in love. Okay. Incidentally, um, you know who gets this right? 
are evangelical brothers and sisters. This is the evangelical religion. It's the gospel of John. You know, um, see, have you met Jesus Christ? <clears throat> have you been born again? Have you had that effective moment? Now, sometimes in the other churches, we, we don't emphasize that enough. <clears throat> and then we, we tend to act, <clears throat> excuse me, we tend to act out of willpower and not grace. <clears throat> you know, the grace of being loved and knowing we're loved. And the danger is when we're living our lives out of willpower, doing our ministry out of willpower, we end up doing it like the older brother, the prodigal son. We'll say, I've always been faithful, I've always done it right, and now I'm bitter, I'm angry, I can't go into the house. Notice the house there is God. The father is trying to get him to come into the house to celebrate. He's outside the house of heaven through bitterness, even though he's done everything right. That's the danger. You know, I'm a Roman Catholic, and uh, um, for us particularly, because in our theology, we've always emphasized willpower. We have always simply, we've been very Pelagian or semi-Pelagian. You, know, you can do this, you can do this, you know. Part of the, 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 the Reformation with Luther was precisely Luther on this. You can't do it by willpower. You've got to do it by grace. So one of the essences of Protestantism, and it's particularly of evangelicals and so on, is this, the, the grace. You, you can't do this by willpower. Um, we, we have to live by grace. And uh, But anyway, I want, to, I want to end with this to leave some, some, some time here. Or maybe I'll do one more afterwards. Uh, but I want to really emphasize this. To, for us, all the tensions that we struggle with, we need ordinary human things to combat those tensions. You know, we need, you know, proper recreation. You might need a good glass of wine at night. You might be so on. But, but also we need effective support from our families and loved ones. And, and, and um, But we also need at a certain point, to, to, to be known that we're loved by God effectively, not just effectively, affectively, that somehow we're drawing power out of that. Let me do one more, and then we'll, we'll uh, <clears throat> and it's my last one, I said, stay until the end. <clears throat> stay until the end. You know, the word faithful and the word full of faith are the same words. To be full of faith is to be faithful. Um, and Jesus says, the person who perseveres to the end will be saved. Um, I'll tell you a story on this. I have an older brother who um, is retired now, still alive, but he had been a missionary for many years in northern Canada with two different tribes, the Dene peoples and the Chippewa people, and, and the Cree people. Dene are the Chippewa. But he tells this story, he said when he first got there, and he had three large villages he was serving, and he said during his first year, he had this curious experience that every time he made an appointment with somebody, they broke it. He said people would be really nice to say, yeah, we'll drop in at 7 o'clock, they wouldn't show. Or say, yeah, come to the house at 7.30, he'd go there, be nobody home. So after a while, he realized this is a pattern. This is not episodic and accidental. So he went to see an elder. And he said to the elder, he said, you know, every time I make an appointment, they break it. And the elder burst out laughing. He said, of course they're going to break it. 
except the last thing they need right now is to have a white man organize their lives for them. Of course, they're going to break it. So he said, what should I do? And the elder said, well, very practically, just don't make an appointment. Just show up. They'll be nice to you. But then he said this. He said, I'll tell you what you should do. He said, stay here a long time, and then they'll trust you and keep their appointments. He said, stay here a long time, and then they'll trust you. He said, they're testing you right now. They want to find out whether you're a missionary or a tourist. They're testing you. They want to see whether you're a missionary or whether you're a tourist. He said, they've been betrayed by everybody. Why should they trust you? But notice, trust it, stay a long time. And he said every year he stayed, there was more trust. Every year he stayed, people kept appointments and so on. Um, see, that's what it means to be faithful. It means to stay. Uh, it doesn't mean you have to stay in a parish forever or whatever. I think we all know what the word fidelity means. That we just don't move away. Uh, and in the end of fidelity, it means sometimes we're going to be tired. Sometimes we're going to be angry. Sometimes we're going to make mistakes. Sometimes people want to try to kill us. Sometimes you might want to kill some of your parishioners. Um, it doesn't matter. You stay till the end, and then it'll all wash wonderfully clean. Um, so um, I leave you with this, and we have about 20 minutes left here for questions. So I turn it back to John Mark. And, uh, <clears throat> Yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah, thank you, Father Ron. Um, I think John Mark's uh, Wi-Fi crashed, so he's trying to jump on right now. Okay, okay. Um, well, you're was, solo. Uh, you're flying solo then. Yeah, I was um, following along, and um, I I was trying to pay closely atten- uh, close attention to this. But um, did you speak to carry your solitude as a high level? I don't, no, no, I, you no. might have jumped over that. Oh, one. I, I, yeah, I, I had, I knew I had too much stuff, so I jumped over it. Do you want me to would comment? You, I would love. That was one of the ones as I was reading the list that I was hoping that you would uh, speak to. Would you be able to speak to that? Yeah. Okay. I'll speak to it from two two angles. First, from from, from literature or life, and then from the Gospels. You know, you know there there's a um, a Czech writer called Ivan Klima. Okay, Ivan Klima. And he wrote a book when he was still a young man, although this book is now, I, I actually quote the book in the Holy Longing, you know, but he wrote a book, and it's called My First Loves, okay, and it's autobiographical, so he's a young writer in Czechoslovakia in the 90s, and he writes this book, and, and he talks about how he grew up in, in the Czech society at the time, and he moved to his culture, he said, we're, we're, everybody just bracketed morals, you know, he said to <laughs> Kind of everybody slept with everybody and nobody cared about anything. He said, and, and he, even though he had no religion, didn't believe in God, he said, he, he simply didn't. And he said, something inside of me stopped me. And people would say, like, like Ivan, why did I do? He said, I don't know. He said, but in my own journals, I'd say, I'm just trying to carry my solitude at a higher level. I just thought it was such a beautiful poetic line. He said, you know, I just, I value myself and I value who I am. So I just want to carry my solitude at a higher level. Okay. And, uh, but it's interesting. Under the book, he says, when I die, he said, because that's the way I'm going to live. He said, when I die and I face, if there is a God, he said, what's God going to say to me? Is he going to say, Ivan, you know, <laughs> why did you waste your life? <laughs> or is he going to say, Ivan, I'm glad that you carried your solitude at a higher level. Now, 
scripturally, that is the story of the invitation to the rich young man and the invitation he turns down. Remember, this young man comes to, to Jesus, and we villainize this young man, and we shouldn't. He's a good young man, you know. Remember, he comes to Jesus and what must I do to possess eternal life? And Jesus, what the scripture said, scripture says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is, and I've already been doing that. Notice, this is not somebody asking for first conversion. This is a very good person, okay? And so what, what am I still lacking? Jesus said, well, then you have to sell everything. You know, in essence, he comes to Jesus and said, you know, Jesus, I've given up almost everything for you. What must I still do? And Jesus says, well, you've answered your own question. The word is everything. What have you held back? You know, I'll give you a, a, a one-line homily from the Desert Fathers on this. You know, they said, a young abbot went to see a senior abbot, and he says, you know, Father, as I am able with my weakness, I, I keep the rule, I say all the prayers, you know, I keep the fast, I do everything I possibly can for Jesus, said, what else should I do? He said, and the older abbot raised his hand, said, and his fingers turned to lamps of fire, and he said, why not become pure flame? It's a cool image, you know. This guy said, I've done almost it. What? Become pure flame. That's what Jesus is telling the rich young man. He said, you are a good person. Why not become a great person? Why, why not, you know, why not just take it, not just one notch higher, take it to the highest notch? Why not roll all the dice? You know, Teresa of Avila had this image for the, the human soul. It's just, the human soul is like a mansion. Imagine you have a house with 30 rooms, okay? And you've given 27 of those to God, but you've kept three because you need them. You know, that's the rich young man said, what are the last three rooms? You know, um, and incidentally, scholars will point out that's he's being called to something higher. And you know why? Because, see, normally, remember the text in the gospel where Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. He finds a perfect pearl. He sells everything he has and gets the pearl. But notice he gets to see the pearl first. And he rolls the dice. Of, here, the, the rich young man, he doesn't get to see what he's going to have. Jesus said, roll all the dice. What do I get? Roll them. And you, you see, that's, that's the final stage of the spiritual life. You know, in the initial conversion, you kind of see what you're going to get. Here, it's the last stage. You know, and that's the call to a higher solitude, you know. And in fact, the, the other thing, Renji, is also with, you know, catechetically with people. You know, there are so many things where people say, is this a sin? Is it a sin to do this? I say, no, uh, it's not necessarily a sin. It's not a question of sin. It's at what level do you want to live, you know? Um, at, at what level do you, you know, there's, there's, there's always higher invitations, you know, since you're all adults and ministers here. So let, let me risk an example. Like sometimes people come to say, is it wrong to masturbate? Is that a sin? I said, well, it's not wrong. And what level do you want to, do you want to live at? You know, do you want to carry this tension at a higher level or not? You know, it's not a, not a question of being good or bad. It's a question of, you know, we're always invited to, to carry more tension, to live at a higher level. Or I love the expression from, from Klima, to carry your solitude at a higher level. That's just this constant invitation. It's, it's a beautiful poetic expression of that. 
I love how you, I'm glad you took the time to um, expand on that. I think um, even as I was listening to you, um, uh, I, I grew up in a context where when I saw leadership, um, decisiveness, uh, authoritative, um, clear direction, visionary, t- moving something to another, another level. Um, and basically it described everything other than Asian in a sense. Um, and when I read through these commandments for the long haul, the idea of, of, of gentleness is something that just really speaks um, and, and moves to me. Um, I guess, could you speak a little bit more to uh, qualities of, of our leadership as, as pastors, as we are moving in this, this season um, so that we can model that for our, our people? Yeah, that, that's such a big question. I don't know where, where to begin on it, uh, or uh, I'm not even sure I'm the right. <laughs> you know, you know um, see, leadership is such a wide thing that you know that may, maybe I'll address it this way. We're each going to have different qualities for it. You know, um, you know, um, leaders have to be firm and they have to be gentle. Leaders have to be visionary and they have to be uh, down on the ground and so on. And a lot of times we're more one than the other. So if uh, and again, Mark, I'm doing the thing by avoiding the question by, by not answering it. No, no, in terms of differences. So if, if your strength is gentleness, at times you're not going to have the firmness you need. If your strength is firmness, at times you're not going to have the gentleness you need. You know, If you're a visionary, it's going to be wonderful, but at times you're not going to have your boots on the ground enough. If you have your boots on the ground, all the times you're not going to be visionary enough, and so on. So that... Um, I'll give you an example of teasing out the thing between gentle and and uh, and hard enough. You know, I became, um, I was an academic, and, you know, that's safe enough, and a writer. But in, in 1990, I was named provincial, which is like kind of a bishop, except you're temporary, for the oblates in Western Canada. And when, when you're named that, we, we were sent to Rome for three weeks for what we sarcastically call charm school for years. <laughs> But, but one of the things that they taught there, which I found, and now I've been president here for 15 years, and I find that's the single hardest part of my job, and that is to address dysfunction, you know? See, so when you have dysfunctional people, so for instance, imagine you're a bishop or you're a leader, and, uh, and there's somebody who's an alcoholic, you know, and you have to put this guy out of ministry and so on, you know? That's hard to do. You know, this guy's a friend and so on. Uh, or somebody's acting out sexually or whatever, you know, and, and where we have to confront people, you know. For instance, as a, as a president of school, the singly hardest things I've done has been to fire people. Sometimes people have to be fired. I mean, I, I need three days of getting ready for <laughs> three days coming down from it, you know. Um, now, other people have that strength, but then sometimes they don't have the sensitivity in other areas, you know. See, so... See, leadership, Reggie, we, we can we can benchmark it. You, you have to be firm, you have to be gentle, you have to be visionary, you have to be practical, and, and you can list all these things. You have to be attentive, and um, you have to build community. Um, you have to address dysfunction. And, you know, those are all ideals, and all of us will be, the boxes won't be checked in the same way, you know. You're going to check some boxes really strongly, and you're going to have those strengths for leadership, and then at other times, you know, you're going to say that this is not 
that, that, that is why, you know what, it, it's good. Like right now I'm lucky because we have a team of executives, vice presidents, so we do this together. So if the fire somebody's not just me, it's, you know, it's, it's five or ten people saying, you know, we've come to this decision, here are the reasons, and so on. But a lot of times as a pastor, you don't have that option. You know, it's going to, it's going to come down to you. You got to do some hard things, you know. Um, you know, I wish there was an easy answer, but, um, and, and there are no, I've long since believed that there's a perfect leader somewhere. <laughs> no. Jesus. But from there, there's a fall down. No, th- thank you. Thank you so much for um, answering it um, yeah. with the, the diversity of leadership that we need yeah. in the church. Yeah. Yeah, Father Rollheiser, can I just jump into that? Um, you know, thinking about your first three points and what you just said, of course, I come at it uh, with Ruth Barrow's tortured sensitivity that perfectly captures the intricacy of my my fragile soul. But I think this question is for wherever people fall in the gentleness to strength kind of personality temperament thing. You know, you mentioned that or in your first lecture that none of us come into adulthood without wounds. By the time you're in your 30s, it's not are you wounded, but how have you been wounded? Um, and that obviously plays a key role in our ministry, but also none of us go through ministry without getting wounded in the present tense, not just in the past by a family of origin, but present tense, you know, and man, I feel that more acute in the last few months than ever before. Um, and I, I hesitate to do this, but I want to read to you a little quote that I've just been thinking about a lot. So I've been doing a lot of research around the psychological principle of transference and it's, you know, um, it's implications for anybody in leadership. So this is Eric Erickson, famous psychologist. I'm sure you've read him. I think you've read him your work on developmental psychology. This is his definition. This is from his psychological profile of Gandhi. And it's his definition of transference. Let me just read it to you. And I'd love to get you to riff on it. He writes, transference is a universal tendency active wherever human beings enter into relationship with others in such a way that the other, in this case myself or pastors, also stands for persons as perceived in the pre-adult past, so former parent or pastor or whatever. He thus serves the reenactment of infantile and juvenile wishes and fears, hopes and apprehensions, and this always with a bewildering mixture of effects. That is a ratio of loving and hateful tendencies, which under certain conditions alternate radically. And that's a bit dense. That's the best definition I've ever heard of transference. And I'm living in that reality right now and feeling wounded, you know, as people bring their own woundedness to bear on me, sometimes because I made a mistake and other times just because of people's own stuff. How do you, when you go into that solitude, when you attempt to be gentle Frankly, how do you deal with woundedness? You know, we're dealing with criticism as a regular part of leadership and making mistakes in public as a regular part of leadership. But especially when you really feel wounded by people, people that you've served and then attack you or whatever, you know, how do you personally, at a very real emotional level prayer, how do you process that wounding and not let it make you quit or turn you into an angry person or a defensive person or... No. no. Okay, John Mark. First of all, thanks for linking this to the to, to the phenomenon of transference. 
you know, I, I, you, I'm glad you, you because it, it would my it helps my address the question. You know, when I look back on my seminary training and all the seminary training I've been involved with, that is the single weakest point. We weren't taught enough about transference. You know, mm. uh, so if I put it in simple terminology, when I was a seminarian, they taught us how to do ministry. They didn't teach us what ministry was going to do to you. <laughs> so that, so you know, they teach you, this is the way you, you minister and preach and so on. But they didn't teach you, as this is happening, there's all kinds of transfers and counter-transfers happening to you. People are going to fall in love with you. It's not really love. And then they're going to counter-transfer and they're going to hate your guts and so on. And see, so that so often we aren't prepared to not take that personally. See, if we understand it in terms of transference, um, then you can distance that from your person. You can say that it's not really me that this person's hating right now. Um, you know, it, it, and it, you can understand that as part of your ministry. You know, I, I've seen so many people, uh, clergy, but sometimes psychologists too and the counselors who really got wounded and bruised because, you know, um, they overread the transference. See, someone is essentially throwing a God image on you. So, John Mark, you're my God, you know. Um, but when they do that, they're going to eventually take you off the pedestal and they're going to take you off with, with some, with some vehemence. You know, and then, you know, uh, both were unfair to you, both, the, you know, the idealization and then also the demonization that comes afterwards. You know, people who idealize you are eventually going to demonize you. That's always the flip side of the coin and so on. Sadly, it doesn't work the other way. <laughs> people who demonize you <laughs> will eventually idolize you. Although sometimes that, that's true. Sometimes the person who hates your guts the most at a certain point, you become God to them and so on. Um, but John, it's more to understand that you know, you know, you you take it to prayer, but also take it to, uh, you know, I, I don't know if, if if you drink alcohol, but maybe, maybe sometimes you should <laughs> just have a drink with somebody, <laughs> friends. You know, you know a, a, a lot of times. Um, let, let me give you a rule of thumb here that comes from psychology. You know, they say as as a as a pastor, for instance, you are asked to carry tension. For your, your people, okay? But now, you may not unload it on them, you know, but you need to download it someplace. That's where you need to have colleagues or whatever. You go out and do some wine drinking, you know, or scotch drinking or something. And, and there you talk about how you're going to get, you're going to lose it all and shoot the whole, all the parishes and stuff, you know. See, so that you need a, a place, a safe place to unload that tension, you know. Um, but, but also, if, I'm glad that you linked it to transference because transference, it means um, you weren't responsible for the idealization completely and you're not responsible for the demonization. And, and again, for I, in all seminaries, I think that's the greatest weakness in their training. The place where I see it done, if any of you have gone through like CPE training and, and, and clinical pastoral training, oftentimes there they tend to address some of this. That, you know, not just we're going to show you how to minister. We're going to teach you about some of the things that are going to, feelings are going to happen as you're ministering. Stuff is, is happening to you. And, uh, but find, find a safe place. Prayer is one of the places, but not, you know, we're incarnational. You need prayer. You also need other people, you know, to, to, to share that tension with. 
and it's real. And if it's happening, Mark, it's a good thing. It means you're ministering. You know, um, it comes with the territory. Oh, that's fantastic. Thank you. Sure. Thank you so much for that. And, you know, um, that just kind of gaining our, our sense of self, you know, in prayer. I'm really grateful. This, um, yeah, just, I think to sum up, just the putting all of this into the paradigm of tension is so incredibly helpful. So, Renji, unless if you have anything else, I think we are officially out of time. We just hit noon. So we'll pass it back to uh, the legend, our local bishop of choice. We call him the bishop, but Kevin Palau. And uh, Father Ruhlheiser, I just can't say enough thank you on behalf of all of those listening right now and the many hundreds or even more that will listen in the weeks to come to the recording. We're so grateful for the way that you've been a pioneer to the spiritual life, and you've shown us kind of what comes. Last question. This will be a very short one. So... Um, myself and my friends were obsessed with your trilogy that your two books through belonging into sacred fire and your three paradigm kind of stage theory of life of getting your life together, giving your life away and giving your death away. When uh, I'm too young to read it anyway, but when can we expect book three in the trilogy? Last question. Well, I'm going to be finished as president here on September the 8th and I'm going to start writing on September the 9th. So hopefully by Christmas or January or something, it should be finished. And then usually it takes with, with double day, it takes about eight months or something to a year for it to come out. So you're, uh, I hope to hand in a manuscript before spring. And so. Praise God. I just okay. need to make sure I have that before I turn 65. So I'm ready okay. for what comes after, you know, thank you so much for your time. Okay. Thank, thank you so much. Thank you all. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening to part two of Ministry and Self-Care in an Anxious Time with Father Ron Rollheiser. Don't forget that we have these gospel gatherings live throughout the Portland metro area about once a quarter. We actually have one coming up on a similar topic, this time from Rich Velotis. Go to togetherpdx.org slash events to find out the next one.